You're listening to the I Love You Keep Going podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.m-e-t-t-a-g-r-o-u-p.org. Welcome, everybody. This is I Love You Keep Going. It's February 23rd, 2023, 7.35 p.m. Pacific time. And I thought I would talk about attachment repair tonight. We generally think of attachment as these three domains, the attachment system, the exploration system, and the collaborative relationship system. Because different attachment outcomes are based on different conditioning, you might look at this as a set of skills that secure functioning requires in order for you to be able to function in that way. This requires a high degree of mentalizing, and mentalizing is, we talk about that in terms of the Fonicky-Bateman approach and early attachment, and then views that establish in mid-childhood, and then the way that you are able to resolve conflicts in relationships when you get past puberty into your adult life. So these three areas in which attachment conditioning comes online, and then create specific patterns in relationships. In the development of different attachment strategies, we could also talk about it as an emotional regulation development or lack of development that also defines this. So we are all born essentially auto-regulators. And then if somebody comes reliably enough, we reorient to external regulation. And if that external regulation is reliable enough, we move into a place of developing collaborative relationships and then learning the capacity to emotionally regulate ourselves independent of the regulator, which then supports our ability to begin to explore things that are meaningful to us. If that process is interrupted in any way along the way, it tends to drop us into different kinds of attachment functioning. So when you're in the autoregulator stage, if nobody comes to pull you out of that into the external regulation system, you become a dismissing adult. This would be an indicator of neglect. Nobody comes to take care of you in a good enough way that you learn to orient toward other people. If the person comes reliably enough to reorient you to an external regulation strategy, but not reliably enough that you enter into a collaborative relationship, then you become a preoccupied adult. And only if they come good enough that you begin to move into learn the nature of collaborative relationship systems, do you move into the area of secure functioning. Without that, of course, there's an effect on the exploration. So we often talk about attachment as this dynamic relationship to exploration. When the attachment system goes off, you're compelled to come back and seek protection from somebody who can keep you safe, which deactivates the exploration system. Once you feel connected and safe, the attachment system shuts down and that kicks off the exploration system so that you can then go out and find out the things that you need to know. The Collaborative relationship is independent of those two things, and that's something that you learn to do or you don't learn to do. 
in dismissing adults, what you have is a childhood of neglect. So there isn't that support in the attachment relationship. That doesn't mean that the exploration system isn't developed in dismissing people it is, but we tend to talk about that in terms of primary and secondary exploration. In primary exploration, it is the doing of the activities that you derive meaning from. And in secondary exploration, it's really about gathering the time, energy, and resources that you could then use for a primary exploration. Dismissing people in childhood, so the child category is anxious avoidant, because nobody comes, they need to really defend, they really need to fend for themselves. It isn't that they enter into a collaborative system where they negotiate getting their needs met, it's that their needs are not really considered. And in order to get what they want, they have to go out and take it. So they don't enter into collaborative relationships. Because the experience of neglect is so painful for children, they really begin to suppress an awareness of the attachment system and suppress awareness of their emotions as a way of coping with that. So in a strongly dismissing adult, they have very little sense of emotion felt in the body. They don't see themselves as collaborative. They see life as a series of transactions. They know what they need or they think they know what they need. And their forgetting it is to gather resources that they can then transact the kind of care that they want. That's characteristic of that. Preoccupied adults, the child category for that is anxious, ambivalent, uh, usually are inhibited from exploring. One of the reasons that works is because their attachment system is activated, and so it deactivates their exploration system. Because the responses from the caregivers are unpredictable and unreliable, they become hyperactivated in the attachment side which deactivates the exploration side, and they also become focused on the other person and become hypervigilant in terms of monitoring them so that they can feel a sense of safety in having their needs met. They typically learn not to seek separation from their caregivers because they need that external source of regulation. Only in secure people do, we, do you have the experience of developing a collaborative relationship and also have the experience of learning how to emotionally regulate yourself independent of a regulator. But because it's a collaborative relationship, you're able to come back, seek proximity and regulation from somebody when you need it. Then when you don't need it, you're then free to go and explore. And because the caregivers for secure kids are available to them, they don't worry about whether or not they're going to be able to be regulated because they have access when they need it. Is that all making sense so far? The one category we haven't talked about is disorganized, disorganized in children and in adults. Jake, you had a question? Yes, I just wanted to ask, the way that you described collaboration there, it almost seems like it's akin to attachment. So is collaboration, like the, the skill of 
getting attachment needs met? Or can you elaborate on what it is a little bit? In a collaborative system, you take care of the other person in the way that they want to be taken care of, and they take care of you in the way that you want to be taken care of. And the way that you learn to do that is by a collaboration. They explain to you how they need to be taken care of, and you take on learning how to do that. You explain to them how you need to be taken care of, and they take on being willing to do that and developing the skill to do it. And then you're able to take on that responsibility and take care of them, whether they're able to, in all situations, reciprocate. This means that if you become sick and are unable to meet your obligations in in that moment in taking care of the other person, it doesn't mean you lose the care of the other person because their responsibility to take care of you is ongoing. And then when you get better, of course, you return to taking care of them, or if they get sick and they're unable to take care of themselves, a period of time, your responsibility to take care of them is still active and you still engage in that. That's the nature of collaboration. Christian? So it sounds like collaboration presupposes two secure attachments, or at least in, in the context of that particular relationship. Yeah, the willingness to do that would mean that you recognize the value of the having that available to you as well. And because in secure relationships, there's a mutual component to it, the, uh, the expectation is that that's what would happen. The thing about this is that it's not always equal. My grandmother, when I asked her about why we all always got the same thing when we were kids, she said that we were trying to be fair. So my my I would often get the same gift as my two brothers, identical, right? There would be three of them. We would each have one. And my grandmother explained that to me as they, their desire to be fair, to which I responded, so what you're really saying is none of us ever had our needs met because it, we weren't one size fits all, right? And there was no real consideration of each of us. There was just the same gift for the three brothers in the family system. So in a collaborative system, you would really take in, into account what might be enjoyable for somebody in terms of the gift giving. And each person is different, so each person's gift might be different. Doesn't mean they have to be, but that's very different than one size fits all in an attempt to be fair. Is that making sense? Jake? So in the pathway towards attachment repair, does I've heard some people describe that secure functioning is something that is more available than secure attachment. And they suggested that maybe people should be working towards secure functioning first. And it sounds like the way you're describing it, collaboration is just like the main piece of secure functioning. Does that make sense what i just said yeah. i think that it is possible to learn the skill set of secure functioning and then move begin to move your relationships in the direction of secure functioning and that's actually a great idea because then you have more secure functioning relationships to support you as you do the deeper work of uprooting the native attachment system and moving it toward earned security but it's also true that you don't need to do the deep work to uproot 
the native attachment, if you're able to find somebody who will collaborate with you on developing a secure relationship from the native attachment strategies that each of you have. So I think that we Metagroup worked with Stan Tatkin in terms of his couples model, which is the model where you move toward secure functioning relationships without doing the work of uprooting the native attachment strategy and shifting it into secure functioning. The thing though about that is that it works better for people that are on the organized side of attachment rather than the disorganized side of attachment. And so most of the models for that, that I'm familiar with really are talking about people who are organized. So dismissing and preoccupied people coming together and working out a more secure functioning way of being in that relationship so that the preoccupied person doesn't burn out and have to depart from the relationship. So what the dismissing person gets out of that is a more together, a more regulated, preoccupied partner that is able to stay in the relationship over a long period of time and have a basic level of their needs met, but doesn't mean that it, the relationship itself shifts into secure function. I noticed that Stan Tatkin's principles for secure relationships seemed a little bit uh, like transacted, seems like a voyeur's type of agreement. Does it sort of thing? It seems, I'm just saying it seems different than what you're doing. Yeah. As long as there's a mutuality and a, a collaborative basis, it is different from transactional. The main way that I would understand that is in a collaborative relationship system, if the person that you're in relationship to for some reason is incapacitated temporarily, your obligation to take care of them does not end with that. Whereas in a purely transactional relationship, you supply and I pay. And if you can't supply, even though you're infirm, then that's the deal is off. So the purely transactional relationships don't operate very well if one person isn't able to provide their side of the exchange. Christian. So it sounds like the quote unquote, <clears throat> fake it till you make it model would work as long as if there's a dismissive person in the relationship, they would have to be willing to take care of the other person and be there for whatever bids for intimacy or whatever kind of needs are expressed. And then the preoccupied person would need to be able to express their needs authentically. And if that could be done, then presumably that secure, that collaborative relationship could become a basis for internalizing that idea of security for the people. But they'd have to be able to go against their tendency to not want to do those things. Right? Well, usually when you work with that model, what you do is you approach the dismissing person because they're good at exploring and they can see their self-interest clearly. And so that if you can explain to them that it's in their self-interest to take better care of their partner because their partner won't burn out and be in better shape to take care of you in the way that you want to be taken care of, that makes sense. So then they're willing to take care of their partner to the point that their partner is in good shape to take care of them and they can see that as something that they value so you're, when you're talking to a dismissing person in that way, you're always coming from the point of view of what they're going to get out of it. 
which is the way that they're oriented. And then with a preoccupied person, you're, you're having them express their authentic needs more often so that they actually can feel valued and taken care of in the relationship and be more willing to participate in the relationship in a way that actually is, is useful for the dismissing person, but also better for the preoccupied person. So is there a moment where the pre where the dismissive person where the taking care of the other person is not thought of as like an explicitly transactional thing where they've internalized it and that they actually you see what I'm saying where it can be really transactional and you explain it to someone that this is for your benefit, but at some point I would think of the secure functioning as having been internalized where it's not such an explicitly transactional thing. I don't think that if you don't intentionally do the deep work of uprooting your native attachment strategy that it changes that much. Okay. But what you're really doing is learning a way of being in relationship to somebody else that works for both people under the conditions that they normally understand that. What you'll find in those kinds of negotiations is that the dismissing person can see it clearly and be willing to do it much before the preoccupied person is willing to do it. Because what you are expressing there is that the preoccupied person has to be willing to come forward and express their authentic needs, but they're mostly operating in pretend mode. And for them to actually see that they have to overcome the resistance to being authentic and to present their actual needs and then to be willing to receive it is actually harder for them to do than it is for a dismissing person to see the value of taking care of their partner in a way that their partner is in better shape to take care of them. They get that and they usually get it pretty fast. Oh yeah, if I give them a little bit of what they want, they're not always hectoring me about it. They're not always intruding on me. I actually get the person who I like being with easier and it doesn't cost me that much. Whereas with the preoccupied person, because they're so conditioned to be inauthentic, to move into the direction of authenticity is harder. So they actually have a harder time with negotiating that kind of secure functioning. The, um, if you can't explore well, dismissing people explore well, then it's hard to sometimes find out what it is that you actually you need in a relationship that would make it work better for you. And so there, there's still more for a preoccupied person to do to be able to come into balance there than there is for a dismissing person to do. So the topic of tonight was repair. So now that you have a sense of this modeling of attachment, how then do you begin to repair it? And if we look at this through the a Buddhist frame, you have the capacity to sense the object that can be sensed when there's contact. Consciousness of the sensing experience arises. It's then evaluated for urgency, I like to say. Does it need immediate attention? Does it not matter if we get to it? If Is there time to have a pleasant experience? The reason I talk about this in this way is because the brain processing time has been evaluated and it is pretty good science. The urgent material always jumps to the head of the queue for processing and requires half the intensity in about three-eighths of a second to jump the queue to be attended to. 
a pleasant experience needs twice the intensity and a half a second of duration before it arises as something to be considered in the queue for processing. Once it reaches the head of the queue, it's evaluated against the perceptual database. So the conditioned response or the that record of the history of the things that we experienced and how we responded to them is then compared to this unattached, un, undifferentiated, unfixated sensing experience. And if there's a meaning in it, in the perceptual database that's close enough to the sensing moment, the meaning attaches and it fixates or becomes conceptual reality. So this is very different than the Western idea, but Aristotle really thought that we take in everything that's around us and we create an internal working model that is basically an accurate reflection of what is outside of us. Epicurus, 300 years later, suggested that if you were in a strong emotional state, that could affect the interpretation of the creation of the working model internally, but that it was still largely accurate. In the Buddhist sense, of course, we're taking in data, creating a working model of what's happening and then projecting that outward so that we live in these interpretations of the environment around us that are mental creations, mental formations of what's actually there. Is that making sense, the difference? So one is an internal model and one is a projection that we operate in. My experience of this is really very much in the Buddhist idea of this, that we create these understandings of what's actually happening, we project them outward, and we operate as if that's what's there. We do not take the systematic survey of what's out there and then create an internal working model. We gather a data, and then we create a world based on that data, and we as if that world is what's there. Makes sense? So if your conditioning is different markedly or not from somebody else, you're creating reality that's different from the other person's reality. And this is, this seems to be apparent in pretty much every interaction with every person in every moment that there's an interaction. <laughs> this is where I'm coming from. Where are you coming from? This is how it appears to be. How does it appear to you since we don't create the same experience? Is that making sense? So then when we talk about attachment conditioning, of course, you're creating a perception of the world that's based on your conditioning. And because you've had the kind of conditioning that creates these different kinds of mapping, we can begin to recognize the pattern of how the child and the conditions the child faces tend to distort tends to distort the creation of the experience of reality. If you have good enough mentalizing, which secure people tend to do, you can understand that you're creating a version of reality that's informed by the experiences you had. And you can recognize that not everybody has that experience. And you can form a response to it and, and push it out into the world and then track actively how that reaction to the present moment that you expressed is landing on the person that you expressed it to. And if you know somebody well enough, you can begin to understand their response to that. And 
the meaning that they're assigning to it, and then understand their reaction to that, their expression to you in response to what you've said to them or expressed to them. Is that making sense? That exchange back and forth. If you don't mentalize well enough to be able to do that, then your capacity to understand the differences between people's perceptions, people's conceptual reality, it becomes a it becomes your reality of which they're responding to in the same way. Is that making sense? So we talk about and can evaluate that on a scale of one to nine. It's an exponential scale. So somebody who mentalizes it a two is it twice a one, somebody at a three is it four times, somebody at a four is sixteen times, and so on up. So that the secure people mentalize in a six to nine range, which is much higher than insecure people, dismissing people in the four to five range, preoccupied people in the three to four range, that's organized, and then disorganized people under three. We didn't talk about what forms disorganized people, but what forms disorganization in a child is that the caregiver is the source of fear so that when their attachment system goes off and it propels them to seek proximity to the caregiver when the caregiver is the source of fear it throws the system into chaos you you're being compelled to seek proximity to the person who is frightening you so the fight or flight system activates at the same time as the attachment system and they have they essentially cancel each other out. So the disorganized child is not able to make sense of what to do in the moment that they need to seek proximity to a protector because their protector is the source of the threat or the fearfulness. Does that make sense? Uh, and because of that, they tend to mentalize at a very low level. They aren't able to track all of the things that are necessary to track, to be able to respond in a secure way. And so their tendency then is to withdraw from or disconnect from relationship because it hasn't been a source of safety and support. So we talk about the working the repair as in a three pillars approach. We need an approach that will add new data entries into the perceptual database so that the body mind can grab secure or secure oriented entries in the database so that you can create a secure model of the world and not a world that's associated with the actual conditioning that you had. So we use the ideal parent figure protocol meditation for that based on the Mahamudra practices of the Tibetan Ban lineage of Buddhism, which is where you visualize ideal parent figures that respond to your needs as a child in a totally ideal and secure way, so that when you come into the present moment and want to form an understanding of what this moment is, you can grab one of these entries and create a modeling of the present moment that's coming from a secure place, which then allows you to create a your response to what's happening, and then also to be able to interpret what's happening in the exchange of information and communication with somebody else in a way that's secure.
Now, you might be thinking, I'm going to do these dopey visualizations and that's going to fix this. <laughs> and it is true in the beginning, these rickety little visualizations that you do create these artificial entries into the database. The imagination is there so that you can fill or create an understanding of it's not unique. It's, it's funny, we've just had a pandemic with a virus that is this thing, this word that I'm trying to think of in a, it's not coming. Novel, there it is. We have the imagination, which is meant to help us create a response to novel situations where there's no entry in the database, right? We, every time we have a new experience, it's novel and we don't have a history of responding to it. And so we have to imagine what kind of response we'll have to it. So part of this process is that using that capacity that's innate into the human condition and a vital part of it to create these new interpretations, these new possibilities of how to respond to the conditions of the present moment. What happens, though, over time is when you use one of these imaginary entries and you create a response to the present moment and you take the action in the present moment, you're creating a real experience that is then also remembered. And then over time, the, you no longer have to rely on the imagination that you gained from doing the protocol. You have an actual experience of life that having made secure responses to the present moment creates the database of security. Is that making sense? Jake. So you're looking for people that engage with this to first have what you just said is a secure response to the present moment experience. That's the kind of first sign of attachment repair that, that it's set in that you're looking for is that people learn the skills of having a secure response to the present moment. Is that it? Okay. And so then after they develop that skill and become more familiar with it, then their relational life just emerges out of that and then becomes actual secure attachment. Is that right. kind of, okay. So it starts with the imagination. We have these capacities to imagine and in childhood, particularly with difficult conditioning, it's possible that we can pinch off or restrict imagination and so part of the process is also repairing those i like to call them pinches uh, these restrictions in imagination you open them up again so you have the capacity to imagine oftentimes in childhood when we can't get the things that we need we can't get the things that we want we restrict our ability to imagine having them because it's too painful to go to want them but not be able to get them over and over again if the pinches remain in place when you become an adult, you don't imagine the things that you, re you really want because you don't think that you can get them. So even if the possibility in your adult life arose where you could have these things that you've always wanted, you don't imagine that you can have them and so you don't take them. So here what we do is begin to open up the imagination so that we can re-engage in really knowing the things that we find meaningful and pursuing them without that imaginary barrier that says that they're not for us, that we can't have them. Christian. 
George, do you think that it, it seems pretty clear to me that at some point you have to start doing, you have to start taking secure actions in the real world. Do you think that if you're doing, say, the IPF work and you're building up secure, you're weaving together secure attachment, and then you're still engaging in either insecure relationships or behaviors that you've depended on for a long time, and you're unraveling that at the same time, or, and so you need to really make a clear choice to think about what kind of, think about the collaborative aspect or think about how your behaviors in real life reflect that. Or do you think at some point, even if you are engaged in those behaviors, you will reach a point in your security where it will be incomprehensible to keep doing that. And you'll naturally turn away from those. D does my question make sense? It does. So I really talk about this in terms of the self-experience. We all have these self-experiences. It's a kind of organizing of the experience of things consciously. And that doesn't change that much. The perception of the self doing these things remains fairly consistent, I find. The same way that you can imagine that you were just like you are now when you were five years old, because the self-experience doesn't change much, even though the experience of being five was completely, radically different than it is now. It doesn't seem like that. And then what you'll notice is there is no conscious decision to make the secure choice. You just make the secure choice. And so what you notice is if you keep track of it is you're just responding differently than you used to respond with no conscious processing of, oh, I'm going to do it secure now. That doesn't happen. You just do the secure thing. And then if you're mentalizing it well enough, you go, oh, that's completely out of character from the way that I used to do it. But there's no conscious processing to get that. It's just the unconscious decision processing that enters consciousness after it's been made and you're in secure and you've chosen securely rather than in the insecure way that you did or the disorganized way that you did before which i think is one of the cool things about this that you seem to yourself to be the same as you've always been and yet you choose entirely differently than you used to make sense jake yeah, that really does make sense. And I can really see how the stages of change theory really fits into that finally. But what about that period between when you first imagine the possibility then actually take a conscious decision and before you have this automatic secure response, there must be a lot of falling down. There must be like a lot of mistakes, you know? What about that stage? You just conveniently skipped over that one. The reason that your conscious self-experience is there is to let yourself in on this. Oh, I'm really trying to be authentic and I realize I've just said something that's completely inauthentic. Then you have to repair as fast as you can. So each time you notice that automatic flow of expression did not produce the secure thing, you need to repair it as fast as you can. Oops. This is, of course, generating mentalizing, which is the se second pillar. You're constantly monitoring and you want to be spontaneous at the same time. So you're completely spontaneous. So you allow these things to erupt and then monitor. And when you notice that you've engaged in something that is inauthentic, you then 
respond with the authentic expression. And then the more you do that, of course, the sooner you get there until it is automatic. But what we're really going for here when you get into the deep change is that you just spontaneously, automatically insecure expressions rather than having to constantly monitor and correct. That making sense. So we learn to mentalize and we use meditation in our approach to developmentalizing. So this is the metavipassana approach that we do. We have a question, what if it never feels safe to be authentic? What is the reason that it wouldn't feel safe? Is it because you're in a relationship with somebody who doesn't feel safe and then you have to pretend? Or are you never in a place where you feel safe enough to risk it? So this is where you want to scaffold that with the supportive people who may also be doing the war to risk it in small things. The move from inauthenticity to authenticity is quite challenging for most people. Partly it depends on how difficult it was to learn to be inauthentic and how harsh the training was. We don't easily come into a place as children of expressing ourselves inauthentically. It's a harsh and bitter training that we undergo in order for that to happen. And depending on how hard it was, there's a lot of resistance to becoming authentic. And you can be so far down the rabbit hole of inauthenticity that you don't recognize that you're being inauthentic. But let's say you do have that insight that you do know that you're being inauthentic. If you push into, so let's say in consciousness arises the authentic response to the situation of the present moment. And if you were to express that fearfulness of abandonment arises, and then the inauthentic thing arises is the mind that you could express instead of the authentic thing. And if you express that, it immediately relieves the abandonment tear. And the delusion in the Buddhist sense of the term is that's actually benefiting the relationship because you don't feel abandonment here. But a little while later, you're angry because you haven't been able to express yourself authentically and your authentic need has not been met because you haven't been able to express it. So you're angry at the person becoming from a place of deprivation in the relationship. You're not connected. You don't feel safe because you're inauthentic and you don't know whether if the authentic expression were made, the person would stay with you or they wouldn't. If you push into the authentic expression, of course, it intensifies the abandonment here. And if you can hold on to that intensification, you're sideswiped by a wave of terrible sadness. And the terrible sadness is this recognition that actually you could have been authentic not necessarily in your childhood. You probably got that, that your authentic expression in the family system you grew up in wasn't tolerated. But if you've been out of that family system enough, if you have some autonomy, you could have been expressing yourself more, more authentically and you didn't. And so you begin to recognize that actually you've abandoned yourself, which is the origin of the terrible sad. And that for preoccupied people who tend to do this, And, and that you could have had the things that you wanted along the way.
had you been willing to ask for them. That's the ter the origin of the terrible sadness. So one of the reasons it doesn't feel safe to move into authenticity from inauthenticity is because you're going to have to endure the abandonment terror and you're going to have to endure the terrible sadness. And so often in our adult lives, it isn't that the authenticity is the problem, it's that we can't bear the abandonment terror and the sadness, and so we stay away from it. So you have to be willing to push into it little by little so that you get acclimatized to allowing the abandonment terror and allowing the terrible sadness until you get onto the other side of it and you can make an authentic expression that no longer activates the abandonment terror or the terrible sadness. I often use the metaphor of mind, that old PC game, Minesweeper. It's a grid and you touch onto one square and sometimes half the board will open up and you touch on another square and it's totally surrounded by mines that would sink your ship. And so you have to go very carefully. So it really is based on your actual conditioning, how easy it is to move out of inauthenticity into authenticity. It is, however, completely worth doing. And once you begin to try to do it and make progress in it, it you see immediately the benefits of it. You don't worry, you're not fearful about being abandoned because you've expressed yourself authentically and the people that you're connected to see you the way that you are and have chosen to stay. Christian? George, I have this sense that for people that are real people pleasers, so I guess really preoccupied, sometimes when they set a boundary, they can actually feel really guilty and become really self-lacerating. But to me, that's them being authentic. So how does that, does that fit into your sort of formulation with the terrible sadness? Because it seems to be a different kind of reaction to, I guess, being authentic or maybe, I don't know if my question quite makes sense. It does. So when the attachment system goes off, it's meant to propel you to seek proximity to somebody who will protect you and value you. And if you have a good enough caregiver, that's what happens. If you have an unreliable, unpredictable caregiver who could respond in that good way, respond in a bad way or a dangerous way, or not be findable to respond in any way, when the attachment system goes off, it's fearful. That's the experience. But you sometimes have in combination to that fearfulness, a rejecting aspect where the caregiver is not only involved you in their mind states and in their care, but they're very rejecting of your expressions for authentic need. And kids who have that experience tend to have guilt when they attempt to set a boundary because they're trying to take care of their authentic needs and they've been shamed in a way about being selfish, about, about putting their needs ahead of the needs of the caregiver. And that's the thing that creates the sense of guilt in setting up your boundaries. With dismissing people, of course, it's different. The attachment system goes off and because they're profoundly neglected, they have the experience of sadness because there is nobody to connect to. So their attachment system goes off and they're faced with nobody. and That creates a sense of sadness. But if they are also rejected, which can happen to in either case, that, that experience of rejection rather than being guilt becomes 
shame. So guilt is about really what you do, and shame is the whole, your whole being is not valued. Make sense? So with the mentalizing training, what we're doing is using meditation to develop emotional regulation skills so that you can hold these more intense emotions and also being able to mentalize so that we use the insight side really to develop the capacity to mentalize so that you can track all of these things happening at the speed that they're happening. And then the heart practice is really to be able to regulate emotions in the experience of relationships. One of the things about insecure, disorganized people is they don't regulate emotions very well. So it's hard for them to operate at a, an emotional level that secure adults would expect. It's too dysregulating for them to be in the intensity of emotion that secure functioning relationships accept as a matter of course. So they become excluded from the experience of secure relationships because of that. And then the third pillar is the psychoeducation around how collaborative relationships function. So we do an education around the dynamics of secure functioning relationships and what skills you may have and what skills you don't have so that you can learn the skills that you don't have for that. Jake? I was just wondering if you could say something a little bit more about the last sentence you said that secure functioning relationships take as a matter of fact these kind of intense emotional experiences and that basically in people with insecure attachment or disorganized attachment is that just too dysregulating for them could you explain that a little bit more what you just said so secure functioning relationships the relationship is not on the table that is to say, once you settle into a secure functioning relationship, you never really consider that the relationship is in jeopardy if there's a conflict in the relationship. So that you can engage in emotional negotiations, emotional expression, and this can be both positive and negative. And because there's a real sense of security and the relationship can hold as a container these intense experiences. Because insecure and disorganized people never really settle into that level of security in the relationship, what often happens when the emotional dysregulation of that intensity of an experience happens, the immediate solution is to shut down the emotional experience by threatening the relationship. So if you don't do what I'm asking you to do, then I'm out of here. Those kinds of ultimatums are very typical of insecure, disorganized relationships. Whereas in a secure relationship, the relationship itself is never on the table and you don't make ultimatums to your partner. You're collaborating with each other to get the relationship to work so they stay open longer. The, the emotional intensity can be greater, but the relationship is never threatened and the negotiation never breaks down. That's really because they even intense emotions aren't so dysregulating that people would want to walk away from the relationship. And also, if it does get too intense, they have ways of de-escalating and tabling so that it can be discussed at a later time. Is that making sense? 
It's kind of counterintuitive. What? It's kind of counterintuitive to from an insecure perspective of what an insecure-minded person might think a secure relationship is like. It's not that there's never any conflict. It's that there's space to negotiate a win-win solution to the conflict so that each party is satisfied. Whereas in the power dynamics of insecure, disorganized relationship, often one party is winning and one party is losing. And then they, because the abandonment here is so great, they temporarily accept the losing position, but they can't hold it for very long. So the issues keep coming up over and over again in a relationship. And it's essentially the disappointment that you can't come to a solution that's acceptable to both people that topples the relationship. Whereas in a secure functioning relationship, the discussions are ongoing until a win-win is, is established. And neither party would accept their partner feeling that they were in a losing position in a negotiation because that would be non-collaborative. Anyway, I think we can continue talking about this next time, but let's do a little bit of meditation practice. I'm ringing the bell. So any comments or questions about the meditation practice? Christian? George, I've been sick all week and I haven't meditated until today. And it occurred to me that I might have actually missed an opportunity, that there's actually a lot of sensation that's very particular to being sick that can be interesting from a meditation perspective. Yeah. Sometimes the concentration isn't good when the body is sick. And so, really, the lesson is equanimity with no concentration. That's one of the interesting things that you can then be totally scattered and in a body that doesn't feel good and at the same time in equanimity whereas often before the experiences of equanimity have also been accompanied by these high concentration states and this real clarity so yeah it can be useful in that way i was in more like torpor but it was pretty sweet good <laughs> equanimity with torpor <laughs> It's a good thing. Jake? I found that a really great and effective and powerful series of meditations. Oh, Thank good. Yeah. It's, that the, it's that kind of the full range of techniques that you use for insight? Mentalizing training, it's, it is also noting rest states and flow states. So that's just the first part. But that's really a lot of techniques. Like you, you just fit in like a whole many bunch of steps into one 20 minute practice. And that was the first time that we've meditated doing insight that I've been able to follow along with all of them and really get a lot of benefit from it. So I just wonder, would you, do you normally, when you teach meditation, would you teach all of the steps of your insight practice over a period of two weeks or something? Because like in the Mahasi tradition or in the Burmese tradition, they'll take at least minimum three weeks just to learn like pretty much half as many steps as, or not even as many, like a third of as many steps as you just introduced in 20 minutes. What I normally do is teach, I'll do a session of see, hear, feel, just plain see, hear, feel, and then I'll do an explore, exploration, a detailed exploration of see space, a detailed exploration of hear space, detailed exploration of field space, 
and then go back into see or feel and then do the focus in focus out do some training in in that and then add on to that the rest states and then do some training in that and then add on to that the flow states so is that the training of insight meditation that you want people to use to work towards the 16 stages of insight as well? Would you use that same series of practices? I'm the, this particular mission is meant to develop mentalizing. So that's why I do it in the order that I do. What would you do? Like, how do you decide to transition a series of meditation? When you structure a course of meditation, do you orient it towards improved me mentalizing or do you orient it towards the goals of Buddhist awakening? I have a different progression for the Buddhist awakening than from the mentalizing. Okay. So in the first, it's see, hear, feel again. And then for the first stage of the 16 stages, the second stage is it's also see, hear, feel, but mapping onto paying attention mainly to mind. So the first stage is Nama Rupa and, the, and developing a sensitivity to the sense gates. The second stage is conditionality. So you're looking at mind and the conditioning around what you pay attention to. And then the third stage is the first pass at the three characteristics, the three marks of existence. And the self-experience is really where I introduce the focus in, focus out, because the focus in cluster is mainly self-oriented and the focus out cluster is the world. Then we move into impermanence, which is the flow states. So the introduction of flow. And then dukkha is the investigation of craving, aversion, and unconsciousness or equanimity. So then there, the focus there is on equanimity. We're in a body, old age, sickness, and death. I went to the barber today for the first time in 10 years to get a haircut because I've had a crew cut for 10 years and I decided I, I was going to go for something else. And bar barbers whip the mirror past the back of my head so I can't really see it. But this guy just really held it there. I could see, oh my God, I'm seeing the back of my head for the first time in 10 years. And it, it's like, there's no hair there. <laughs> That's so funny. It's terrible. Old age sickness and death. <laughs> Imagine seeing that when you're in your 30s. <laughs> no, I know. Because that's when they started moving the mirror really fast. They show you the front, they show you the sides. Just zips right by. So it's hilarious. All these years I've been rubbing the back of my head thinking that there was hair there. <laughs> <laughs> so then after the third stage you're into the fourth stage which is arising and passing so that's where you're really getting into the just note gone technique so that you really begin to pay attention to the gones of each arising and passing and then that moves you into the focus on flow where the first the barriers between the sense gates dissolve and then the barriers between inside and outside dissolve then you're in dissolution. So the different progression. You have a far more detailed teaching than what they teach in monasteries in Asia. Did you realize that? They basically just push you along through the state, through your practice, through the bodily based practice and say, okay, now you're at stage one, 
Right. Uh, now it's stage two, but they don't really, unless you find someone with particular, it's very rare that people have like all this worked out. So maybe you should be teach a class <laughs> when we, you know, in November. I did, when I was in Burma, I guess in 2019, looking for a meditation center to bring our group to, I went to the Upak Center and I met a monk the and he- Pawak Center. And the monk that I was given a monk so that he could practice his English with me because he was being trained to be a translator. And he took me all over the monastery. It was quite a, a lovely day. Uh, but he had been doing breath counting for five and a half years. And they were yet satisfied with the state of jhana that he could get into and that he wasn't being offered any insight practice at all. And we had a hearty laugh about the nature of impatience in the West where that simply would not fly. All right, we're out of time. Thank you for coming. Really appreciate your practice. We have some level level one coming up in a couple of weeks. If you're interested in that on Saturday mornings, it's on the website. We have a level two coming up in April. We've added a meditation and addiction class in May. So take a look at that. The retreat in Utrecht is still happening. So if you're in Europe and want to come to that, please do. I offer this teaching freely, but I do hope that you'll make a donation if you can. There's a link on the website to do it. Any amount is appreciated. It helps support me and also the work that Metagroup is doing. And we make the space available for anybody if you're not resourced. Thank you for coming. Really appreciate it. And we'll see you soon. Thank you, George. Bye.